You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Uh, I'm quite sure, actually, that nobody was disappointed that they didn't hear one of Peter's acclaimed fantasies, but in fact, we took a voyage with Peter. And there's kind of a, it's kind of odd to me that we have um, a very accomplished uh, writer who's just starting out, who's written his first novel, and Peter, who's written, who has a, a long and distinguished career, actually going back, looping back to the beginning. And I was thinking it'd be kind of interesting to talk about origins, and I'm thinking, I remembered, I think it was Borges, or maybe it was T.S. Eliot, or it might have been John Gardner, somebody can <laughs> correct me, but who pointed out that literature is not really made out of life, it's actually made out of other literature, that we actually, what inspires us to write, for the most part, is not our lives, but the lives that we've read about and the way that they were told to us, because... Uh, that's where we live, like uh, writers, one kind of removed from another. And so the shelf of literature is, I think, what Peter brought into this proceeding tonight. And, I, and one other thing I just wanted to mention, in which Peter and I were just talking about, is that often you don't learn from Shakespeare. It's not from Shakespeare or from Tolstoy that you get your, your inspiration and that you learn how to do it. You learn it, as Peter said, from hacks, from other writers, from genre writers, from the writers that we, we first ha had access to. And I know that's true in my own life. And I was going to ask you, Mark, how, what did you think of that piece? And how, how do you look back on, you started writing after a career as a, an artist, but you've clearly been thinking about it a long time. So it didn't, and it, my guess is it didn't come out of nowhere. So where did it come from? Uh, the book or the decision to write? They're two different things, actually, for me. Well, both. Okay. Well, the decision to write had been waiting a long time to happen. Um, I really had I, had... I had been reading this kind of literature voraciously since the fourth grade. My, our fourth grade teacher read The Hobbit by J.R. Tolkien to the class. Oh. And that's how I discovered this kind of literature existed. Uh, this is back in the late 60s, I think, or... Uh, maybe very, yeah, the late 60s. And um, so I'd been reading it for years and, and for a very long time had, you know, I mean, once you start absorbing these stories, you, if you have that kind of creative mind, you begin making them up as well and had wanted to write. But by the time I was in college, it was obvious to me that a career in writing was neither realistic nor responsible. Oh, it's not. Uh, not at all, no. <laughs> So I became an artist instead, <laughs> and <coughs> the, the, the bottom line is my head has always been stuffed full of images and stories that I needed to get out where other people could share them. And for many, many years, I enjoyed being an artist, but I, I finally figured out that I was still trying to get out these stories one frame at a time, one picture at a time. And uh, around the time I turned 40, in about 96, um, not in about, exactly in 96, um, 
I just figured out that, you know, I was turning 40 now, and I probably only had a few years left to do anything. So, um, Getting short. yeah, yeah. So, uh, so if I was going to ever do this writing thing, I'd better. And the minute I started doing it, I suddenly realized that I could get the stories that I'd been trying to get out one frame at a time as an artist. I could get out those stories much, much faster as a writer, and probably better as a writer than I was doing as an artist. Uh, as I've said several times to people just this evening, one picture may be worth a thousand words, but it turns out that a thousand words are worth 50 to 100 pictures. Um, so I, I finally just figured out that it was time to stop doing it the slow way and start doing it the fast way. I had, I still like talking about the woman who was my both second and third grade teacher in New York who loved and protected me. I was what I've described as a weirdo in training, who sat in the, didn't, this kid who sat in the back of her class writing stories about Tarzan and the Lone Ranger, <laughs> major influences of mine. And she didn't mind that, well, she told my parents not to worry about my grades. And when I was sick one winter, she sent home a copy of a book I'd never heard of called The Wind in the Willows. Mm. And if any single thing made, bent me towards fantasy, and I mean bent, <laughs> that was it. I came out of bed and back to school wanting to do that, whatever that was, and I didn't know. But whatever that was, I wanted one of those. And I read, and along with my two best friends, consumed an enormous amount of what can only be called trash. But we had fairly good taste in trash. Um, I not only... I not only remember most of Leslie Charteris's novels about the saint, I even remember the, saint, the saint's light verse. Because every now and then, right in the middle of saving the world, while pocketing a goodly amount, the saint would stop something and write poetry. <laughs> Some of it very funny. And, you know, there are... I remember... Um, meeting Ursula Le Guin for the first time, and we wound up off in a corner discussing happily the trash of our childhoods, mm. you know, beloved garbage. But I learned an awful lot from that beloved garbage. In some cases, it's um, what not to do, and in others, it's just what cutting to the chase really means. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the food, the finest food we'll ever eat, a lot of it was grown in manure. Um, mushrooms, for instance, yes. But, I mean, vegetables, corn, fruit, nope. it's all fertilized by things we would call trash, but so maybe they're not. Who did you read the sad Tolkien? Which Tolkien oh, yeah, I mean, it's this, it's this, exactly, it's the, he's the... Uh, but what else? Oh, uh, boy, once I got started, everything I could get my hands on. But some of the authors that have really influenced me, Ursula Le Guin certainly influenced me a lot. I mean, uh, how to, just how to use language, how language should sound, the rhythm and the flow of it, the lyrical quality that the, not just the plot and the characters, but their environment could possess. All of this was powerfully impressed upon me the first time I read the Earth Sea trilogy and virtually everything else I've read by her since. Uh, Greg Bear who 
most of us know, well, first of all, Greg Bear started out as an illustrator, for those of you who don't know. Oh, yes, yes. He, he's another artist who finally figured out that it was better to write. Um, and one of his earliest books, everybody thinks of Greg Bear as a science fiction writer now because that's what he writes, hard science fiction. I mean, he's even helping the government to figure out terrorism with science fiction. Uh, so he's, he's hardcore. But some of his, one of his earliest books was a duology, uh, this, uh, The Infinity Concerto and the Serpent Mage, which was entirely classic fantasy, but set in contemporary time. It's about a boy in L.A., probably in the 60s or 70s, who strikes up a friendship with a film, film score pro uh, producer and uh, uh, composer across the street uh, and is lured by that composer's music into fairy where he is trained to be a great mage. And this was the, f his books were the first time I'd ever read a fantasy, a fairy tale that wasn't set in the Middle Ages, that was set in the California I knew. And that's where it occurred to me that there was a kind of fairy tale that didn't just go away when you closed the book. Because the medieval things, you shut the book, and the world you're now in has nothing in common with the world you've been lost in while you read. Well, I shut his book, and the world of that fairy tale was still all around me. And so the story leaked right back out into my life. That had a big influence on me. Um, Sean, Sean Stewart and Patricia McKillop and um, Gene Wolfe and, uh, uh, oh, my goodness. Well, of course, Once in Future King, um, yes. you know, um, the Secret Garden, uh, there, there were just, uh, the list is too long. We can't yeah. do that tonight, no, but those were some that's, ideas, that's, yeah. That's, that's a good idea. And of course, The Last Unicorn. I, I read that when I was a kid. All my books were lost when I was early, about, about, just as I was graduating from college, I had stored them in a shed, and the shed wasn't dry, I didn't realize, and they all mildewed. I had to throw everything out. So I had not actually... I read The Last Unicorn when I was very young and liked it, remembered liking it, but that went out with all my other books years ago. And then I met Peter a few months ago by coincidence at a convention we were both attending and had the opportunity to buy the new version of uh, The Last Unicorn with its very spiffy sort of sequel or addendum, whatever you want to call it. Coda is the word. Uh, coda, yeah. coda, with its coda. And I took it home and I read it again for the first time in easily 20 years. And the phrase, I laughed, I cried, I nearly died, um, came immediately to mind. I found it charming immediately, but the moment I got to the monologue of the butterfly, I thought, no, not charming, absolutely magical. That conversation that the butterfly has with, with the character early on in the story simply led my mind into stories behind stories behind stories that weren't written in your book, but were all pointed to by your book. And uh, it was magical. It's, it's truly, I mean, it's, I'm assuming that you've all read it, but if you haven't, you're missing a great classic, and you need to go back and read The Last Unicorn. I need, and I need to mention, since we're talking about early influences, that I was very consciously imitating several writers I loved who, whose books I knew, all of them by heart, and they were all gone and I was never going to find anything new by any of them. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to write something they might all have written together. The one is, was T.H. Um, White, of course, mm. who's the only one, just about the only one, who can still make me laugh and cry at the same mm -hmm. time. Absolutely. Yeah. The Irish writer, James Stevens, who was a real influence, 
The, J the James Thurber of The Thirteen Clocks and The White Deer, two books I know damn near by heart. The, another Irish writer, Lord Dunsany. The thing is that I really was consciously trying to do something they might have done. I was lucky in the sense that by the time I got to Tolkien, I'd, al I'd already discovered Robert Nathan and a lot of other people. And while I loved the Tolkien books, they didn't influence me in the way that the others did. Mm -hmm. And I'm always being bracketed with them, and there's not a whole lot of comparison for good or ill. The generation of writers that I was growing up with, people who wanted to write, were told early on that they were going to have to deal with Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald, <laughs> that they were standing there right across the road, like the giant in Pilgrim's Progress. And with realism in, in general. All that, and, yes. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and here again, I was the weirdo in training in a college writing class, which had some very good people in it and two wonderful teachers. But I was already dealing with you know, French playwrights like Giraudoux and Jean-Henri, and who used fantasy marvelously well in their plays. And I was always off to the side somewhere. You know, it was always a bit skewed. I was never influenced by the people I was supposed to be influenced by, and heavily <laughs> influenced by, by people I practically wanted to be. I was so serious about their work. I can be influenced very easily. I can look back at a book and think, I know what happened there. You took a break. You went up to the house to get something to eat. I always think of <laughs> still living in Watsonville, working in a barn, and you had to go to the bathroom. And there was that E.R. Edison book in the bathroom, The Worm or Uberos, or something by Jessamine West, and whatever the hell it was, you came out of that bathroom for the rest of the day trying to do E.R. Edison or <laughs> Jessamine West. There are one or two lines near the very end of The Last Unicorn that make me aware, yeah, that was the year they reprinted The Worm or Uberos. <laughs> and that's the way it is. You know, there, there's no way you can avoid being influenced. Like if I talk to a writing class, I really do meet, I really have met young kids who are very anxious and afraid to read things because they're afraid of having their style influenced. <laughs> and all you can do is scream, you don't have a style. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. too young to have a damn style. Um, you read everything and everybody and do your work, and in time, you won't, be, you won't be able to help having a style. And there is no such thing, really, as a purely original style. We're yeah. just, we're just as whoever it was says, and it could have been any one of those three guys. We're bits and pieces, mosaics of <coughs> of all. Who the, who the, I, I am. Tennyson says that I am a part of all that I have seen. Mm -hmm. Well, there it is. We're a mosaic yeah. made up of all those. Absolutely. People. Yeah, you're part of a shelf, and certainly there's a a uh, in fantasy there's a. A, a clearer shelf than in literature in general and, and in science fiction too. We have that great, on the one hand it's an advantage, in another way it's kind of a limitation, but we do have a, a distinct uh, heritage to deal with, whether we want to or not, you know. I know for me, I started, I read the Oz books when I was a kid, had a, but really young, and then I never read another kid's book. 
I never read Winnie the Willows, or I never heard of Winnie the Poodle. I'd gone away to college. Um, but what I read was like, uh, the guy I loved was James Ramsey Ullman. I don't know if people Oh, yeah, Mountain Ullman. Climber Tower. Yeah. The White Tower. The White Tower. The Sands of Karakor. I love that stuff. It's sort of uh, H. Rider Haggard adventure type sure. stuff. And I remember the big influence on me, I remember when I was about 20 years old, and I read uh, Fine and Private Place. And I thought, oh, you can do this in New York City. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can do this in mm -hmm. Queens. I had, mm -hmm. It had never occurred to me. And, and I have to say, and I'm not just scratching Peter's back, that... That book had a huge influence on me because it it um, it basically opened a whole door that you that you didn't have to you know you didn't have to have jerkins and flagons and shit you could uh, you know do the yeah the pistols and the flat right yes. yeah so um, but it is you know I th I thought your piece was just marvelous the um, it reminded me of a, uh, we had a um, Dick Lupoff did. Jacob, you remember when Dick Lupoff read the piece about working in the bookstore book down on yeah. 4th Street? You've yes. heard it, yeah. No. yeah. It, had, it had that same kind of feeling to it. So let's open this up. Do people have some questions? We have two authors here who have read two remarkable and remarkably different pieces of work. Oh, come on. Yeah. Hijacking, hijacking, hijacking. This is a Peter announcement. My name is Connor Cochran. I work with Peter. Uh, He's my accomplice. Is an essay called That Love Returns. <clears throat> it's going to be published this year in a book called Smeagol, Deagle, and Beagle. Essays <laughs> from the Headwaters of My Voice, in which he writes an essay about all these different people he talked about, including him. And I just want everybody to know that he does a free email newsletter, and if you would like to get it, we'd like to have you on the sign up sheet before you leave tonight. That's all. And that wasn't really a question. <laughs> that wasn't really a question. Mark. Connor. That's right. The author formerly known as Mark Ferrari, the artist. I like yes. that on your card. Yeah. I know lots of people who tell me that their writing has musical influences. Peter talks about writing passages like this is a quartet or this is a brass solo. Mm -hmm. Do you find that your visualizations, that your art style in some way comes out in your writing? Uh, no. Yes, but no. Um, I don't think my art style comes out in my writing. I think the thing that was coming out in my art is coming out in my writing. Um, they both came from the same place. And my writing tends to be very visual. I've certainly noticed that. It, the, the experience of writing is every bit as visual for me as doing pictures was. Uh, when I'm writing a story, I'm literally experiencing it like I'm inside a movie and I'm seeing everything I'm writing and smelling and touching it all and trying to just transcribe it into words there as quickly and effectively as I can. But it's a very visual experience for me. But I don't think it's so much that my art is showing up in my writing as much as it is that this other thing, whatever it is, showed up in both of them. Uh, and the music does the same thing for me, too. I, I listen to music while I write, and the music r suggests all kinds of images to me. You do? What oh, kind yeah. of music do you listen to? Sound, soundtrack music, mostly. Soundtrack of what? Oh, geez. Uh, movies, uh, Cirque du Soleil shows. Um, cool. uh, there's an awful lot of really wonderful narrative music out there that was written to complement stories and has a lot of... You know, narrative, suggestive quality. Uh, there's certain music I listen to if I'm writing something adventurous and you know active, and there's other th stuff that I listen to if I'm writing something sad, and there's stuff I listen to if I'm writing something mysterious and magical. Um, I have a huge library of soundtrack music that I listen to. Oh, I I can't do that because then I stop 
and start listening to the music. <laughs> so what, what I do, I have a kind of reward system for myself. You finish this page, you know, or get this scene or sequence done with, and then you can click on YouTube for a while and watch Fred and Ginger dance. <laughs> <laughs> I've always noticed that I'll, I'll allow myself to watch dancers for a while, or watch Doc Watson pick, and, all right, all right, take the earphones off, go back to work. Mm. But I'm, f I'm fair about that, and I envy you your, your visual quality because that comes the hardest for me. I'm hmm. from a family of artists. Hmm. My mother and brothers were all painters, and I'm the, I was the one who couldn't paint, who couldn't draw, who didn't seem to have that side of his brain hooked up to the other side. And so when I do come up with a physical this passage of atmosphere, description, or world, I knock myself out over that. Um, I love dialogue, I love listening to people, and that seems to come very naturally. The different, the different speech rhythms, the ways people talk, have fascinated me since I was little. Mm. But ask me to describe this table, mm -hmm. I'd have to think about it. And yet, every book I've ever read by you was an intensely visual experience for me. It's all very vivid. I see it all very vividly. So you're succeeding somehow. Well, I have to sit there and make myself see it. I mean, you may be doing it naturally, but with me, it's just, damn it, think about it. And literally closing my eyes, making myself see it. Thank God YouTube was sufficient incentive to bring you all the way through that. Well, there's stuff on there. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I've, I've discovered with Peter, YouTube's great for music these days. Yeah. Charlie yeah. Parker. Char yes, yeah, there's every, always a clip anyway, somebody. Anyway, that's changing the subject. But, um, all right, anybody, uh, yeah. No. You're not speak a little louder if you can. It's a little tough. Sorry, oh, yes, <laughs> yes, the network is working. I like to echo what you were talking about texts that you read as kids. Uh huh. I've got the fortune to to have a son who's now old enough to read on his own, and I'm remembering the stuff that I read as a kid that you know created a sense of wonder. Andre Nolte, Robert Sylvester. Sure. So I've got a kid that I'm going to start living that all through again. And I guess my question to you gentlemen is, what do you think the state of juvenile science fiction is these days is that walking into a borders, you see, you know, entire walls full of books now where when we went to the library, I know when I did, there was a little rack that spun mm -hmm. with paperbacks on it and mace. Mm -hmm. That is what I read. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to get what your impressions are about juvenile science fiction or fantasy. I think there's some wonderful stuff being done now. Mm -hmm. Like what? Well, um, the, well, there's some wonderful stuff staying in, for instance, anything by Robin McKinley, for starters. And um, Pat McKillop. Mm -hmm. and, and a whole mess of people I had simply never heard of. Uh, there's a... It's funny how many of the, the writers I'm really struck by these days are women. Nancy Willard is another. And I'm, I'm, on the side thing, I'm immensely pleased that books I discovered 50 years ago are 
remain, remain in print, and they're comparatively modern mm -hmm. books. There's a mm -hmm. young adult writer, they weren't using the phrase then, named Edward Eager. And I knew of Edward Eager for a funny reason. He was a wonderful songwriter. He wrote delightful lyrics for musicals that would run a week. Hmm. And I would come out, I'd come into New York from out of town, somehow sneak back from Pittsburgh to see some musical that Eager had done the lyrics for because I knew come Thanksgiving that it's going to be gone. <laughs> but he wrote a sequence of children's books relating around different forms of magic, half magic, Mm -hmm. Seven day magic. Oh, magic by the what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, <coughs> he started publishing those in the 1950s when I was most aware of him, and they're still in print. Mm -hmm. And that says something. I read them all to my children. That's one thing. I read to my kids when they were growing up. They, we didn't have television, which had nothing to do with morality or the view of the evils of television. We just couldn't afford it. So I was the entertainment center, and I had to read f in the e every evening to three children, each about three and a half to four years apart. So it had to be something that would entertain all of them, and me, and their mother. And it didn't matter which part of the library it was in, the adult side or the children's side, it depended. So I um, read, all, read all the Sherlock Holmes stories to the point where my younger daughter started having Sherlock Holmes dreams. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm saying is that there are things, the line isn't, isn't as clear as all that. Mm -hmm. There are books supposedly written for adults that are wonderful for children, and heaven knows, vice versa. Um, yeah, but the line's getting clearer and clearer. I, I think what you're saying, there's a lot of, there's a whole section of books now marketed Two children that are YA books, and a lot of them are science fiction, and a lot of them are fantasy, and a lot of them are, I think, truly dreadful. But back, I have a, a ten-year-old grandson who reads a lot, and people say, "Oh, this is great! Harry Potter's got kids to read." You see the crappy reads. They, it's there's one, there's a dragon a week. You know, there's there's uh, this stuff. They're but kids stuff didn't out. read crap as much, but kids didn't but read even the crap much, uh, much before Harry Potter came along to change that. I'm, I think that's also the good. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm grateful for Harry Potter. You know, reading crap is reading at least. Yeah. Um, and mixed in with that crap every now and then there's a gem, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know. I, I just wanted to, I mean, I do think that there is, I do think that there is a scramble to uh, a, a, an unseemly scramble to uh, shove kids uh, books down these kids' throats, and they're all kind of the same book over and over. And mm. I don't know. There does seem to be a a diminishment going on. I think there's some very unseemly. I think there's a lot of very unseemly material uh, avalanching in that scramble. But I don't think the scramble itself is unseemly at all. I think the scramble itself is delightful. And there are some fairly good series out there. The Bartimaeus uh, series, I don't, I don't, <laughs> embarrassingly, I don't remember the names of the authors. Who cares about them? <laughs> but um, the Bartimaeus uh, series, Garth Nix's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday series, uh, the Charlie Bones series, uh, a number of things by Holly Black that are certainly aimed at kids. And I'm not just talking about the Spiderwick Chronicles. Um, 
there's a, there's, you know, you, you have to kiss a lot of toads before you find the prince, and you have to shovel a lot of dirt before you find the nuggets. But I'm glad to see people doing the dirt, you know? Sturgeon's law that 90% of everything is crap. That's right. Yes. I'm talking 98. And there's a kind of Gresham's law at work here, which is that bad crap drives out good crap. Well, there's such a thing as good crap. So. This is something that um, Lois McMaster-Bedold and Michael Swanick both brought up at Baycon this last year. They were talking about the numinous in fantasy. They felt that good fantasy had a numinous quality. Numinous? Numinous. Spiritual kind of, but not more of a kind of, you know. So I was thinking, Mark. You know, numinous. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sounds like a fantasy kingdom. This led me to think about, okay, and this is something I think both of you do very well, is and something I appreciated from your book, which is fantasy found in in mainstream American culture. Okay, because so much of fantasy is is medieval, you know, you know, you know, from long ago. All the the magic comes from long ago, and I appreciate. And I want your opinion on the magic that's in actual, you know, everyday life, everyday mainstream American life. Well, actually. I think that part of what's behind the sudden mainstream interest in Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings and, you know, the, the fact that in the films we're seeing so many fantasy films now and things, I think part of what's at work here is a real vacuum when it comes to imagination and wonder uh, in our culture. I think it's what drove a lot of the Star Wars success as well is that you know, for a long time, we were just such a no-not, well, we were trying to be such a no-nonsense culture in the 50s and, and you know, even into the 60s in some sense, you know, it was all about the wonders of science and chemistry and, and you know, the space race and, you know, all of these things, which might have fueled science fiction, but it sure didn't fuel fantasy. And I think uh, the novel that I, the, the uh, trilogy that I'm working on now, um, is all really about uh, the idea that the inner subjective world is where the outer subjective world comes from for all of us. You know, we're very proud of all, all these things we've invented, but none of that was stumbled across in nature on a hilltop someplace, you know? It all was drawn out of in here. The key to DNA was found in a dream. The guy had a dream about a snake, you know, biting his tail and curled up like a helix. We we have discounted imagination as something frivolous and childish as opposed to logic and rational science. But in fact, all that logic and rational science really came out of that imagination. And I think our culture is finally waking up to its own long accumulated thirst to fill that vacuum. People have begun to just, even if they don't understand this articulately, have begun to feel viscerally the the deprivation of that part of life, and they're looking for something that's simply got more legs than the sort of dry practicality that they've been raised on, um, the numinous that you're talking about. Uh, I think we're waking up to the fact that that's 50% of human nature and 70% of invention and inspiration, and we're, we've been running dry. Time to rekindle that, I think. And I think fantasy literature is a place where people are finding that thirst slaked. Some. Does that answer your question at all? Okay, good. Please. I, I kind of wanted to argue that a little bit. I, I 
tend to think that the, the sort of big race toward fantasy in some of the science fiction right now. Talk real loud. Um, was really fueled kind of by the eruption of the video game market. Mm. And that the fantasy and the, the fairy tales are in open season for the writers to pirate, in a sense, and bring into the games already existing. So I, I think that's really been the, the engine. I think the, the gaming, I mean, that's what I do for a real living, is I do background art for video games and handheld, you know, uh, platform games. I think that the, um, I think that the gaming industry has been a primary vector for uh, transmitting and amplifying this new interest in fantasy. But why fantasy? I mean, the, game, the gaming industry started with things like Pong and Space Invaders, which were not about fantasy at all. They were, they were you know, these were games of, of coordination and quick reflex. Uh, I think, you know, you can get into saying that with magic, you have a lot of opportunities to create lots of special effects. You have adventure stories, which most fairy tales are in some way an adventure story. So they were engaging on a level that is story. It's storytelling. And they're old stories. They're well worked through in a sense that the storyline has been well worked out in advance. And I think that they're, like I said, they're free. Them to pirate in and bring in on it. And then you have a whole generation or now a couple generations that are raised on the expectation of, of fast moving, uh, good storytelling, because the old stories are good stories quite often. Um, I actually think an awful lot of the storytelling in computer games is pathetic. Some of the worst that's out there, but... Right. But I mean, but, but once again, the only reason... I mean, there's plenty of crass commercialization out there. If that's what you're saying is that this is really driven just by a need to capitalize on existing resources to sell, I would agree with you. On the other hand, I would also say the only reason that the gaming industry has focused on that fantasy theme is because there was such consumer response to it. So the very fact that they've narrowed the field down to fantasy suggests that they've discovered that's what their customers respond to, which suggests that the customers have a thirst for that, regardless of how crassly the industry is using it. Well, what I've always known going to conventions is that people have a great hunger for another reality, whether it's supplied to them by television or the church or <laughs> computer games. You know, I'll sit um, behind a booth when the books aren't selling and watch the costumes go by mm. and watch people for those four days or three days joyously being some damn body else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I understand that from the point of view of somebody who's, who makes up stories. I'll never write an autobiography, for instance, because I've been there, <laughs> I know how it comes out, and it's so much more fun to live somebody else's life, to make up somebody else's life, to react like somebody else, to tell somebody else's story. You borrow bits and pieces from your own life when they come in useful, of course. <laughs> but all the same, the need to be somebody else, somewhere else, someone else, however it's couched, I think is built into human beings. Yeah, I agree.
I agree. Actually, the whole idea of cross-pollination and genetic diversity is crucial to healthy evolution. The idea that you need some components from some from outside yourself in order to continue growing and being healthy. A girl. And a girl, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, the fact that it takes two people to create a third rather than just one, it's the idea that you've got to meld things from sources outside yourself. And I think that's what's happening intellectually and imaginatively as well. People do need to draw materials from outside the lives they have and the people they are uh, in order to stay growing and healthy. As a writer, long dead, 50 years dead, an English writer, male in spite of the name, Joyce Carey, whom I read as a writer to this day with a curious kind of how the hell does he do that wonder because Carey had an incredible gift for being inside people who weren't Joyce Carey, who, mm -hmm. by, by the way, was an artist who decided he wasn't good enough to make it as an artist, but who created one of the great artistic characters in, in literature, Gully Jimson of The Horse's Mouth. Mm -hmm. Gully is a great artist. He is also three-quarters crazy. And most <laughs> importantly, you do not want Gully in your house ever. He will drink up the liquor. He will paint what may very well be masterpieces, but they're on your walls. <laughs> he will invite his friends in, some of them may be sculptors. Um, <laughs> Carrie's Carrie's work is full of people both as, as astonishing and maddening as Gully, and also as a little man named Tom Wilker, an Edwardian, whom Gully derisively calls Ferossamouse, who's not at all flamboyant, who's trying so hard to hold back the time that's taking, that's taking away the Edwardian age of which he's a product. Um, trying to wistfully seduce the, the girlfriend of his very dramatic, very charismatic brother who's died. The point is that um, Gully is all color and Tom Wilker has no color. And Carrie's so damn good that he can make you cry for somebody like Tom Wilker. And I've read some of Carrie's books over and over like somebody watching a magician. Next time, I'm going to see how he does it. Connor. Well, some of the work may be you. Mm -hmm. What I'm going to say is, is we're actually recent research in neural anatomy and in, in, in brain physiology indicates that a lot of the stuff you're talking about is we're hardwired for it. Mm -hmm. There are these things called mirror neurons. And when you are watching someone with an emotion, anger, fear, love, whatever, the same parts of your brain are firing that if, that if you were directly experiencing it yourself. When you watch someone just walk across a room, there are mirror neuron responses in you which are related to the parts of your brain which deal with you walking across the room. And so when we're exposed to a film, a TV, a game that offers something larger than life so that, that we don't normally get to experience, we're flooded with this strong empathic reaction. Uh, autism and sociopathy are now being looked at as, as diseases of a lack of, of proper associative neurons. And, and so we're kind of hardwired to be fans of exactly what you're talking about, the experience bigger than we are. Mm -hmm. And that is the kind of conversation we get on very long drives to Los Angeles or <laughs> Canada <laughs> when we've run out of Stephen Sondheim songs. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what, um, what Mark said about uh, imagination and
I, I understand what you're saying, but there was a tremendous imaginative landscape. In the, I grew up in the 50s, and there was a, a, a fantasy landscape. It had to do with space travel, had to do with the future. The fantasy, la- the fantasy was in the future, and, not, and now the fantasy's in the past. That's where the, the kids want to go. That's a sociological Thing. I mean, we can debate that, but it's, you know, it's, it's... Well, I have a theory on where that space travel imagination went. I think it died when we got actual space travel. Right. Yeah. That's, what, that's yeah. what killed it. Yes, we, While we could still imagine what was out there and imagine what that would be like, it was a venue for imagination. But once we actually started going there and the science community began telling us what it was like and describing it at least in the 50s and the 60s, as kind of a giant vacuum full of dust and rocks and nothing else, the imaginative capacity, the, 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 the potential for imagination bled out of that, and we yeah. had to look elsewhere, no, like I, I, the I, Middle Ages. I knew Jeff Baer's father-in-law, Paul Anderson, very ah. well for years, and mm-hmm. I've, read, I've read his work for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And what Paul was one, was one of the very few people who could write both hard science fiction and marvelously imaginative classic fantasy. Most people can't go back and forth like Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. He could. And the paradox is that to this day, you know, I will reread his um, Three Hearts and Three Lions, or The Merman's Children, or Operation Chaos. Tau Zero. um, No, that's the point. His hard science fiction is a complete mystery to me. Mm -hmm. I remember telling him that the line, it's that clear a line. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the hell Paul's doing with mm. a lot of the hard science fiction books. And I've gotten to the point where I don't try. I'll just go back and reread one of his fantasies. Mm. And there are classic stories in, in the old style dealing with um, dealing with mermen, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with the clash between paganism and Christianity right. in a fantastic sense, dealing mm-hmm. with um, dealing, dealing with time travel back into you know, a, a medieval world, mm-hmm. and they still hold up. They really mm-hmm. do. Cliff, um, getting sort of grooving off the idea of the stage magicians and, and tricks and how they do it with writing. Um, you've both written works that are fantasies that are set in the mundane reality that we all live in. So, how do you approach the task of writing between those realms? Like, oh, here's breakfast, but here's, you know, God and Lucifer, or hmm. here's a butcher, but a raven flies in and steals the slime, whatever, you know. I s- tend usually to sneak up on fantasy. For instance, the book that will be out this year begins with a couple who aren't married, but who have been an item for over 20 years. Who That's li- a fantasy? <laughs> well, uh, they not based on, but suggested by a couple I knew up in Seattle. That's what started off. I remember thinking that's probably the only relationship I could sustain. And I began thinking about it. He lives on an island off Seattle. She lives in Seattle proper. Um, he's a retired history professor. She's a flight attendant, just waiting it out until retirement and the free ticket anywhere the line flies. And they find themselves um, sort of taking in a young woman who looks, as he says, as though she got to Woodstock a day too late, but whom they gradually realize is 
not quite what she seems, who is, you know, in, f- in fact, a, a creature out of legend. Um, as far as the professor's concerned, he doesn't really care. She's cleaned out the garage wonderfully, you know, mm-hmm. to to make it you know, a place where she can live. Mm-hmm. And she's found both his divorce decrees and his Louis Tiant baseball. And in other words, I will, for every fantastic element that I put into a story, I'll do everything I can to ground it with about, you know, five very recognizable elements out of our world. That either way, either way you can't cheat. Hmm. This is the, the thing you learn. It's this old cliche about getting the reader to come along on a, a journey of suspension of disbelief to grant you this point, let's say, that there are such things as werewolves. But given that, you have to pay almost more attention to the reality of it mm. than a, quote, mainstream writer even bothers to think about because his audience is already, you know, speaks the language. Mm. And so I've, you know, with one or two exceptions, I don't throw you bang into the middle of fantastic action mostly a kind of sidle in. Yeah. Yeah, I think sidling is very important. Um, I always sort of begin with the premise that the the mundane world characters in the story are not paying attention. That's where they start. So that things can happen right in front of them that they simply won't see because they're not expecting them. Um, I was on the Richmond-San Rafael Bridge during the Loma Prieta quake. Um, the bridge moved around quite a bit, but I had just bought my car brand new Uh, about two months earlier. And the first thing that happened as I was driving across the bridge was that the car went... Actually, I need to go back for a minute. I had been... I was working at Lucasfilm in Marin at this time and living in Oakland. So I was traveling back and forth across this bridge twice a day, every day, and had been for nearly a year. And from that bridge, you get a lovely view of San Francisco. And anybody raised in the Bay Area, as I was saw a long string of movies in school about the big earthquake coming and what we needed to do, and it was all full of those views. So you're kind of trained every time you see a beautiful view of San Francisco to think, what a shame it's all going to be destroyed any minute now. (laughs) So there had actually been many moments when I'd look at that view, and I remember on several occasions thinking, boy, wherever I am during the big one, I hope it's not this bridge. I mean, I had (laughs) thought that. And then I would also think, but what are the chances that I would be on this little stretch of roadway? So going back to the day of then, the first thing that happened was my car just began to do this. And I immediately thought that there was a tire coming off. You know, I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm losing a wheel. So I started slowing down. And as I started slowing down, I noticed that the car in front of me was doing this too. And I thought, and I thought, something on the road? And then all of a sudden, both lanes of traffic were just shoved three feet to the right. And I thought, wind? I mean, <laughs> If you are not, if you have already decided that what you're looking at isn't, isn't likely or isn't possible, it can happen right in front of you and you are not going to see it. Once we stopped and the bridge was doing this, we all knew what was happening. I thought, oh my God, I can't believe I'm this stretch of road for the big one. But as I left the bridge a moment later, I decided to tune in the radio and see, you know, what I could learn about this and I couldn't get a station. And all I thought was, God damn it, brand new car, no reception. I mean, even after I'd been through it, I still didn't get, you know, what was going on. So 
when I'm writing one of these stories, the first assumption I make is that the characters are not paying attention, and a whole lot can happen that they're just not going to see, or they will explain away. It's a, and it's a running thing in my own work. The well, things, yeah. The things well, that people can talk themselves out of having Absolutely. That's, that's part of the way you can ground it. And the other principle that I always do goes back to the part of the traditional fairy lore that always says that fairies can only be seen from the corner of the eye. Um, and I think that that's a profoundly accurate statement, actually. Um, and when I write, I am very, very careful, whenever possible, to view the magical and the miraculous and the wondrous only from the corner of the eye. I, no matter how brilliant any author is at describing something spectacular, the human mind, even the human mind of the inarticulate, uninitiated reader can create things 10 times more spectacular. The imagination is infinite. So if I describe something, I'm actually putting limits on it. It can be only this spectacular and no more. But if I just point at that thing and I'm careful not to describe it, once I've pointed at it, the reader's imagination will go there and supply elaborations that are not only more perfect for each individual reader, since each individual reader makes them for themselves, but larger and more magnificent than anything I could have ever described. So when I finally get to the point where the magic and the wondrous is no longer being ignored, but is actually now, you know, clearly there, I try to describe it by pointing towards what I want them to see and letting them fill in the gaps rather than trying to fill in those gaps myself. The guy I always use as an example was the 19, late 30s and 40s filmmaker Val Luton, who is known for things like the cat people and I Walked with a Zombie. <laughs> Luton always had about a buck 98 to make a film on. There was no money for serious special effects, even if they could have done them mm. then. But Luton made marvelous use of shadows, mm. of the thing you almost see, that your imagination can populate perfectly well. What I wrote was that the, the, the monster is always an actor in a monster suit. The shadow is real. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it reminds me of what you were saying about Peter's work creating these great images. Absolutely. And of course, what's really going on is that every writer has this great collaborator, which is the reader. Yes. I mm -hmm. mean, that's who Absolutely. you're working with. And you count on the reader's intelligence. And every writer also, I think, has this... One tool that we all use is the stupid character. You know, the, the narrator a lot of times should be a little bit dumber than the reader. It flatters the reader and <laughs> it sort of leads you through the story. Yes. And it's a, it's a device that, uh, that is used quite, a, you know, everybody uses and it's, it's kind of essential. I don't know that the narrator is really needs to be stupider than the reader. The narrator just needs to be a little bit stupider than the reader thinks he is. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a better way of saying it. Uh, do we have any other comments or questions for our readers? Uh, yes. Would you please repeat the title of that Joyce Carey book? It's called The Horse's, the Horse's Mouth. Mouth. It was made into a movie in 58 because Alec Guinness fell in love with the book and not only played Gully Jimson, he wrote the screenplay. And we've never been made otherwise. It's still a marvelous movie, although it's really a fraction of the book, which is narrated by Gully. It's one of a trilogy. It's the, it's the last book of a trilogy. The first one's called Herself Surprised, which is told by Gully's former model, occasional mistress, and absolute scamp, Sarah Monday, 
Sarah's been a great many things in her life, and Sarah could be ro Sarah could be robbing a bank, and somehow do it with a kind of wonderful innocence that would somehow make people fudge on the description of the bank robber. The second book is To Be a Pilgrim, which is about Tom, Tom Wilker, that utterly colorless man Carrie makes you feel for. But the one people remember is the last one, The Horse's Mouth, I suppose because of the movie. And because, you know, Gully is such a, an overwhelming character, at the end of the book, he does battle with Sarah. He needs a, a painting of his, well, it's, it's hers. He did it, gave it to her long ago. It's a painting of her in the bath called Her Self-Surprise, title of the first book. And he wants that back. You know, he needs, he needs the money. He f struggles with her over it. And Sarah falls and by accident, you know, is fatally injured. But when the police come to ask the, the description, you know, of, of the person, you know, who injured her, Carrie, um, Sarah gives a description that isn't at all like Gully. She dies lying. You know, it's, it's her nature. And Gully himself you know, dies at the end of the book of, as somebody said about Big, big Spider, Big, Big's died of everything. <laughs> Gully kind of dies of everything, but not before he's, he's painted his masterpiece, an entire wall of feet. <laughs> um, they're wonderful books, and I'll read really anything by Joyce Carey, but it's been 50 years since he died, and very few people know his work. Well, if the movie put it on the map, Robertson yeah. Davis kind of comes out of Carrie, don't you think? Yeah, it's a good yeah. point. There is a yeah. connection. Uh, Carrie, by the way, as I say, was an artist. Uh -huh. I think these things come from the same place, the art and the writing. They're both attempts to tell stories. They're both attempts to, to make inner visions tangible. I think they're just two ways to try and do the same thing in some respects. Well, they're both arts, uh, yeah, you know. Well, one, do we have any other uh, contributions? I hope uh, this is... Uh, uh, going back to an earlier point in the conversation, you uh, mentioned a, a... Your publicist mentioned a, 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 a collection of uh, shorter works that, that... The Weevil, the Eagle, and the Smeagol. Um, there, these are, the title was, comes from a 12-year-old a boy who just made the connection and came up with this perfect title almost, almost casually. It's a collection of essays. The essay on Robert Nathan is in there. And there is, the longest piece in the book is the title piece, Smeagol, Deagle, and Beagle. And it has to do with my association with the Ralph Bakshi animated Lord of the Rings 30 years ago. Um, the script is mine, for what that's worth. And the, I was thinking about it earlier on, oddly, because we were ta talking about medieval fantasy. Mm. And the guy who does the voice of Aragorn in the animated film is John Hurt. And he did, it was splendid, because his Aragorn has been out in the rain for a long time. And um, we were talking, for him it was a couple of days work doing the voices for the Lord, the voice for the Lord of the Rings. He couldn't wait to get to a dramatization, I can't remember, it was a, it was a full movie 
of Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast because he was going to play Steerpike, the villain of the piece, so God knows a wonderful, a wonderful part. And when I mentioned Gormenghast is a castle, an enormous castle, miles and miles long. You're going to shoot the whole budget in that damn castle. I was younger then. And John looked at me in mild surprise and said, well, you know, this is England. We've got castles. <laughs> <laughs> and I sometimes think that one problem American fantasists have had to deal with is that we don't got castles. Well, I, d I want to add one thing to Mark, who said you started right when you were 40. Uh, Ari Lafferty, who was one of my favorites, yeah. said, he said a couple of things about writers I always remember. He said, every writer is out of ideas by the time they're 40. Oh, and that's and right when I started. Uh, nobody should start writing till they're 40. Interesting. So nobody should start writing till they're out of ideas? And Scott Fitzgerald said the mark of a true band is the ability to hold two opposing ideas at the same time. Ah. Listen, thank you all for coming. Come see us again. We're going to be next month. We're always going to have a great venue. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.